0: Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 7. We are still studying in the Sermon on the Mount and after three weeks of being away from this study, how many of you remember exactly where we are and know exactly what happened in the last sermon? Nobody does. And neither do I. No, I actually... um, You get get into this and, and you get away from it for that period of time. And you kind of have to reorient yourself to things that are going on. And there is so much in this sermon. We've been studying it for a year and a half now. So there's no way that I could go back and catch you up on everything that Jesus says. But we are returning... Uh, to a portion here, uh, a subject that is really a vivid reminder that living to according, or living to according the principles uh, that Jesus sets forth in this sermon is really something we absolutely cannot do in our own strength. Jesus gave us an impossible standard to live by when he ended chapter 5 with verse number 48. He said, "'Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect.'" And as if everything else in the sermon wasn't hard enough to do, chapter 5 ends with a statement that puts God's requirements far beyond the possibilities of human performance. And so if you ever thought that you would be good enough, that you would be strong enough, that you would be holy enough to be pleasing to God, Jesus put it all out of reach right here with this one statement. He said, you must be perfect as God is perfect. Now, if you survey any religion in the world, anyone outside of true Christianity, you'll never find a standard like this to live by. Now, in all the other religions, uh, they may have their way to get to heaven. They have their own methods. They think that will get them there. But one thing that you will not find in any of them, no one ever made a statement that you have to be as perfect as God to get into heaven. Now there are also some in Christianity that don't understand this requirement because they fool themselves into thinking that they have actually reached perfection and so they don't sin anymore. John addresses that in 1 John when he writes that those who say that they have no sin have deceived themselves. So even if you're a Christian and you think that you don't sin, you're wrong. John says you have deceived yourself. So this leaves us with a terrible dilemma. We must be perfect as God is perfect. None of us are, and neither can we be as long as we live in this flesh. So how are we going to solve this? Jesus says, be perfect as God is perfect. He gives us all the standards in this sermon that we are to live by. And so it seems like that we have been left to hopelessly pursue a goal that we can never reach. Well, the answer to the problem is that Christ is our perfection. We stop striving to reach heaven based upon good things that we do. And we rely completely on what Christ has done for us. Now that is really the essence of our salvation in Christ. This is how we're actually justified with God. The most important doctrine that's found in the Scriptures is the answer to the question that Job asked thousands of years ago. He said, how shall man be just with God? And the answer to that question takes us to the core of all Bible doctrines. It's the impetus for God becoming man and coming to this earth and going to the cross to be sacrificed for our sins. We are justified with God when we trust Christ. Because at the moment when we trust him, what happens is that God transfers the perfect righteousness of Christ's life to us. And that perfect life of Christ stands good for our imperfect life. And so that means then, when we put our faith in Christ, that we've met this all-important criteria that we must be perfect as God is perfect. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying that you could ever live without sin, but he's saying if you're depending upon yourself, you cannot get to heaven. You must believe in him. He is our perfection. Well, that brings us to the subject matter today. We don't live this life that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in our own strength. Arthur Pink said, Divine assistance is imperative if we are to meet divine requirements. So no matter how good that we think that we may be, no matter how hard we try, we never will have the ability to think right, to do right, to treat each other right, or even to worship God right, unless God helps us. But God does not do any of it automatically. You don't sit down once you get saved and expect that you're going to live in the will of God and that you're going to live this victorious Christian life unless you constantly seek God. In the first part of the sermon, Jesus addressed that in the Beatitudes. He said in the sixth verse of chapter 5, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So there has to be this hungering and thirsting for it. It has to be sought after, and you must ask for it. So that brings us, once again, to the subject of prayer. Let's see how Jesus gets into this subject again in the 7th chapter. We've already seen it in the 6th. But let's look in chapter 7, beginning with verse number 7. "'Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent?' If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us the opportunity to preach your word today. We thank you, Lord, for your people who are here. Thank you for Father's Day. And Now we just ask you, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to the Scriptures. Help us to understand what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now today we are going to look again at the subject of prayer. In chapter 6 we had extensive teachings on this. And you may remember, I hope that you do, that we broke down every phrase that was in the Lord's Prayer. And over a period of nine weeks we studied everything that was in the Lord's Prayer. Now I couldn't touch, uh, I mean I couldn't expound it all. There's so much there, it's so profound that I couldn't do it. But we looked at every phrase and that was the model that Jesus gave to teach people how to pray. The Lord's Prayer is probably the most profound 66 words that were ever written in any language. Jesus summed up everything that we need to know about how we can speak to God, about what kinds of things that we are to ask for in those few words. And, and they're not words that we are to repeat mindlessly, just say the Lord's Prayer over and over again. But what Jesus gave in each of those, those phrases of the Lord's Prayer was a skeleton on which we build our own prayers. He teaches us what we are to pray for. Now, prayer is vital Christian activity. It's the highest form of worship. And that's demonstrated by the time that Jesus takes to address it in the 6th chapter. And then coming back to it again here in the 7th chapter. He puts this above all acts of devotion. And in this section, he comes back to it again. And he shows us that prayer, your prayer life, is vital for proper discernment. Now, you said you didn't remember what we were talking about before this, so we have to go back, and I'm not going to take time to read verses 1 through 5 again in verse 6, but that was all about judging. Jesus is warning us about judging. And he says, you can't judge others when you are guilty of sin. He says, when you judge, you are going to be judged in the same way that you have judged. And then he made a shocking statement in verse number 6, which amounts to actually very serious judgment. There are some that he's teaching us there that it's not worth spending your time on with the gospel. And you have to decide who they are. Now that requires a critical eye. It really requires a heart that's in tune with God. And no one can make that assessment properly unless God speaks to him and works through him in his prayers. Now, I want you to look down at verse number 12, which will be the subject of the next message. Uh, you'll recognize this. We call it the golden rule. Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So, verses 7 through 11 become a perfect bridge about uh, between how we're going to make critical judgments of others and then treat others in the same way that we want to be treated. That requires God's help. Now, if you don't understand everything that I've just said here and what those first five verses and verse 6 particularly are about, go back and get CDs or whatever. Get it on the internet and listen to that because... there's some things there that I think that you really need to know to make these connections. But this, this thing of making vital discernments, proper discernments, proper judgments, is not something that's automatic. It's not any different from any other requirement that's found in this sermon. In order to do this, you have to go to God, you have to stay with God in order to receive what you need. So what do we need to get help from God? Well, we want to start today with the prevailing plea. Jesus says in verse number 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Now the first point that I would want to make about the prevailing plea is probably the most obvious that we can draw from the passage. What's the obvious point? You must ask to receive. Prayer is the means by which we get from God. I mean, we get things from God because we pray. And you really can't get any more basic than this. If I were to take each of you individually, and I were to ask you, how do you get things from God? Well, I don't think there's anybody who would answer any differently. You would say, well, you have to ask Him. If you want to get things from God, you have to ask Him. Well, that would beg certain questions, wouldn't it? Like, why don't we have more power with God? Why don't we have more power with God? Why don't we see more people being saved? Why do we have trouble getting along? Why are we anxious and worried about life? And why are we having the very same troubles that these people 2,000 years ago had when Jesus gave them the Sermon on the Mount? Why do we have all the problems? Well, there's a very explicit promise that's given in verse number 8. If you need these things, Jesus says you can have them. If you need answers, you can get them. If you need help, it's ready and available to you. Because God says all that you have to do is ask. Now this is a promise that's not unlike any other promise that God has made. Not one time in all the Word of God did God make a promise that He wouldn't keep. And I know that you believe that because... When you put your faith in him, you believe that he would save your soul. You trusted him to do that. And then, uh, after you trusted him, you, you expect that God will keep you. And you really do believe that. God said that he would keep you. That's a promise that he gave. And so you believe it. You know, if you remember, we, we talked about Paul's, Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8, where he tells us that if God was willing to give his greatest gift, and that, of course, would be Jesus. If He was willing to give us his greatest gift, would God withhold from us anything that's lesser? That's what Paul says in Romans 8:32. "He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So the promise is there. God has made it, but God has determined that many of his richest blessings will not be given to us until we ask for them. So the conclusion to what I said earlier, what's the reason why that we don't have all that God has promised? Why is it that we don't have that power with God? Why is it that we don't see people saved like we want to see? Why are we having trouble getting along? Really, the answer to all those questions is found right here. And that is, you have to ask for it. And the reason that we don't see it, because there aren't enough people in our church... And that may include me. There aren't enough of us who are really praying to receive this from God. And we're not going to get it until we pray for it. You see, there's something that's going on in our prayer life that isn't quite right. And the chiefest problem, I think, is we just don't ask. Now, in a moment, we're going to get to other reasons why we don't receive. But this is the one that I'm convinced is the big, big reason of all. The reason that we don't receive is we just don't pray. Now, if you're a Christian, you have a prayer life. You do have a prayer life. I mean, you didn't get saved without one. And whether your prayer life is dormant, almost dead, whether it's inconsistent and sporadic, whether it's fervent and on fire, you do have a prayer life. And the evidence of what kind of prayer life it is, is demonstrated in your everyday life. Now, when we studied the Lord's Prayer, I said, you show me a person that's stingy and reluctant about their giving, and I'll show you a person that doesn't pray. You show me a person that can take church and leave it, or leave it, and I'll show you a person that doesn't pray. You show me a person that has time for themselves, but they have no time for God, then I'll show you a person that has a very little or non-existent prayer life. Because a healthy prayer life corrects those problems. It corrects the problem of what you're going to give to God. It corrects the problem of your service to God, your your church attendance, and all these things. A prayer life is going to correct that. You have the right kind of prayer life. You're asking from God. You'll receive what you need. So I think um, that a large part of the weaknesses that we have in church life and in the Christian life in general, a large part of it is due to this. It's just a lack of prayer. We don't ask and therefore we don't receive. Now let's look at this prevailing plea just a little bit further because Jesus also teaches that you must persist in prayer. Now we would think that the first part of verse number 7 would be sufficient enough to get that point across. He says, ask and it shall be given you. And then correspondingly in verse number 8, he says, for everyone that asketh, receiveth." But he doesn't stop there. And instead, he adds to ask in verse number 7, Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And then corresponding to those statements in verse 8, Are he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And so the idea that Jesus is trying to get across about prayer is that it's not something that you just do once, and then you forget about it. You ask, you seek, and you knock. And those words... Those three words in the original language, the verb tense there, is that we are to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. And so, in addition, most agree that with each of those statements, that Jesus is increasing the intensity of the desire. He says, ask, and that implies that you actually do believe there's somebody there who'll answer. You believe someone hears those prayers. There's value in asking. I mean that's the very first step of faith in prayer. It's simply that you ask. You believe that prayers will be answered. James says that we are to ask in faith. Nothing wavering. Then Jesus goes on to the word seek. Seek goes further than ask. Because it implies that there has to be some action in the asking. Let me give you an example. If you, if you pray that God will give you a job. And instead of hitting every available place to fill out an application, you sit at home all afternoon watching Dr. Phil or spend your time on Facebook, then don't expect that you're going to get a job. You know, I, um, I have many people that come to me and they say, well, Pastor, what I'd really like, I would really like to understand the Scriptures better. I'd really love to be able to teach other people. I'd like to know about the doctrines of the faith. And they come and ask the question, how can I do that? And that same person Goes back to the old habits. Sometimes they'll skip church. They don't regularly read the scriptures. They don't search the scriptures thoroughly. They don't live a godly life. And above all, they don't do this. They don't prevail in prayer. And so there's no hope to get what they want. There's no hope to get established in the doctrines of the faith. And know more about the word of God. And teach other people. It's not going to happen. Unless you... Have those things in place in your life. Now seek means that you have to get up and you have to get active doing what God has already told you to do. You can't ignore what God's already said to do. You have to ask and then seek. Keep at what God has told you to do. Then you'll get the answers. Now the third word is knock. And up goes the intensity because added here is steadfast perseverance. Now this is a very important thing because as we persevere, we actually become more involved in the process. Our persistence is not because God is unwilling to answer us. God doesn't say, well, persistent prayer, prevail in prayer, keep on asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. God doesn't say to do that because he's unwilling to hear. But God wants you to be involved in the process. Because the more that you keep asking and seeking and knocking, the more times you're before his face. The more times that you're there in fellowship with him. And that relationship keeps getting built. So God says, keep on coming back, keep coming to me, keep asking, seeking and knocking because I want to build the relationship. And so the urgency grows, asking, to seeking, to knocking. And prevailing prayer is the idea. James says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, he said, pray without ceasing. So keep at it, keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Well, then I'm also asked, when do you stop praying? And my answer to that question is actually another question. What are you praying for? Now, if you're praying for something that is not going to bring glory to God and something that's selfish, then I say, stop praying right now. Don't pray for the wrong reasons. You say, well, God, I really need a car so I can get to work. Well, you keep praying until God gives you a car or he works out your transportation in some other way. But if you're praying, God give me a car so I can get to work and make sure it's a BMW, then I say stop praying about it. You know, I found this to be true, that if you meet God's already predetermined criteria for praying, such as praying in faith, praying while you keep God's commandments, praying after confession and forsaking of sin, praying with all perseverance, then I find that God will let you know when it's time to stop. Now, either he'll give you what you're asking for, or he'll tell you it's time to move on. If you do all the above, I mean, always always keep God's commandments as best as you can. Keep, keep praying, confessing, forsaking your sins, pray with perseverance. Then you'll know when it's time for you to stop praying. How will you know? Well, that's the answer or question I really can't answer. You just know. If you've done all these things, you just know when it's time to stop Persistence in prayer, though, is something Jesus says we must do. Uh, He gave this, or is the subject of a parable, that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 11. I want you to turn there, Luke chapter 11, because this is a portion of Scripture that parallels Matthew 6 and 7. Uh, Luke is one of the synoptic Gospels. That means that it takes the same point of view. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels. And in this passage, Jesus gives instruction on prayer in which he gives the very same basic teachings on the Lord's Prayer. Then he starts the next part with a parable, and then he ends with the very same words that we have in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Now notice what what Luke 11, beginning with verse 5, Jesus speaking. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine is in his journey, has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in the bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, that though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Now you see the word importunity? That means insistence. Now in this parable, a man has a guest who arrived late at night and he had nothing to feed him. So he goes to a neighbor and he asks the neighbor to borrow some bread. But it's late. Everybody in the family is already in the bed and everybody's asleep. And to go down and rummage around through the kitchen would wake everybody up. So at first, the neighbor refuses. And the fact that they're friends is really not enough to cause him to go get the bread. He, he won't loan him the bread just because he's his friend. But this fellow keeps persisting about it. He's relentless in asking. I mean, he keeps on asking because, and this fellow, he's going to answer him because he knows if that guy's out there asking all the time, eventually he's going to wake up the family anyway. So I might as well get him what he wants and get him off my back. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. So the neighbor gets up, he's probably not too happy about it, and he gives him the bread. And the man received because he didn't quit, quit asking. The comparison that is about to be made by Jesus is that if a man would not respond to his friend, except that he was all too persevering, then how do you think that God would act towards you when he's already so favorably disposed to you? See, you're, you're not just a friend. You're his child. He loves you and He cares for you. He wants all things that are good for you. And God is also better than the neighbor because God is never asleep. There's no bad time that you can go to God. Uh, You know, the the scripture we just read a moment ago said pray without ceasing. How would you do that if God is only open for business at certain hours? God is always there listening. He's better than the neighbor. So how is He going to respond to your persistence? Well, that leads me to the second part of the teaching, which is the Father's favor. Now, this is what we call one of those fortuitous occasions because now we get an opportunity to work in something about fathers. When I was first working on the sermon, I didn't even realize that it was Father's Day today. And, and so I said, well, well, I'm looking over this. How am I going to get some fathers in here? Well, here it is. The Father's favor that we see in the Scripture. Verse 8 again. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Before we can talk about the Father's favor, I have to review with you first of all who are actually the children of God. He says, everyone that asketh, receiveth." Now that has to be qualified in two ways. First of all, it's not a blanket statement that says no matter what you ask for, you're going to get it. James says ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. The context of James' statement concerns those who don't live godly lives. We're talking about people here that fight with each other in the church. They want to hang around with the worldly crowd. You can't get what you want from God under those circumstances. Now, again, I want to quote for you from Arthur Pink. He said, Few texts have been more grossly perverted than this one. Many have regarded it as sort of a blank check, which anybody, no matter what his state of soul or manner of walk may be, can fill in just as he pleases, and he has only to present the same before the throne of grace, and God stands pledge to honor it. You are not going to get from God, no matter how persistent you are, if you are a disobedient child. But further, we see a common theme that runs throughout the sermon. Jesus uses the term Father 17 times in this sermon. Now, if you need a good reference point, we go back to chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. And the very first phrase was actually about relationship. He said, Our Father which art in heaven. And all of the rest of the prayer is predicated upon that relationship. Because no one could ever honor his name. No one can ask for his kingdom. No one can pray for his will. No one can ask him for forgiveness. No one can get their guidance. No one can glorify him without first being able to call him Father. They have to have the relationship because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so what we're talking about here are believers and believers only. No one else has the right to go to God. And so that means that all prayers that are prayed by anyone other than born-again Christians are useless. And so I say to you, if you're in that condition, stop praying. Because your prayers are meaningless. And what you need to do is do one more prayer. Pray one more prayer. You say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then you receive Christ as your only Lord and Savior. I know that some people say, well, that's awfully mean. Pastor Smith, you're just too intolerant. Well, am I doing anybody a disservice when I tell them that their prayers can only be heard in Christ? Am I I being mean because I would tell people to trust Christ and avoid hell? There's no greater kindness or compassion that I could show to anyone than to tell them that Jesus stands ready to forgive them of their sins. If they will but believe in him, God will give them eternal life. So then, how does Jesus express the Father's favor? Well, he compares the basest, bare minimum benevolence of an earthly father to that of God. Now, first we see that the Father exceeds in goodness. The Father, the heavenly Father, exceeds all earthly fathers in goodness. Verse 9, What man is there of you... Whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? I want to show you a picture that I took uh, when we were in Israel. I don't know how well you can see that. But this picture is of the ruins of the city of Dan. This is the northernmost city in Israel. And if you know your history of Israel, one of the first cities to go into idolatry. One of the very first ones that was captured by the Assyrians. And this is the, the ruins of the wall of that city. Now, I, again, I don't know how well you can see that, but you see the color of those stones? You see the big stones that are there? And pushed in between those, as fillers, are these little stones. And if you could see that in a much clearer picture, you would see that those stones have the color of bread. If someone was to tell me that Israel means big pile of rocks, i believe it. Because Israel is just full of rocks. So these are people that would get the illustration that Jesus is getting, trying to get across here. Rocks are everywhere. And so Jesus says, who, what father, would try to fool his children by giving them rocks that look like bread? Would, would a loving father do that? In verse number 10, he says, what about a serpent? Would a father give his son a serpent instead of a fish? Now what Jesus may have had in mind here, maybe two things, maybe a snake... Serpent, Or he may have in mind an eel. In either case, both of those were unclean animals. Jews could not eat those. And so the question that Jesus is asking, would a good Jewish father try to trick his son into eating something that God said is forbidden? Something that's unholy. Would, Would a good father try to give his son something that God said you can't eat? Now notice again verse number 11. If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? You see this? If ye then being evil. I was reading about this and there was one writer who made a comment and said that Jesus did not mean here that all earthly dads are evil, but that he's just making a comparison. But I would beg to differ with that because that's exactly the point that makes this illustration stand out. All of us are depraved. The very best father on earth is a sinner. Just like my father was a sinner, your father is a sinner. Now, that might not be a nice thing to say on Father's Day, but it's the truth. We're all sinners. Now the point here then, if a sinful, evil father would not deceive his children, he wouldn't give him a stone, he wouldn't give him a serpent in the place of what he asked for, how much less would a holy, righteous, heavenly Father who is all goodness not deceive his children. And what Jesus is trying to tell us again is the Father really desires for you to come and ask him. He wants to give you all good things. Now another point that could be made about our dads is that we know our dads well enough that we know what kind of answer that we're going to get. See, if your dad was really tough on you and his idea was that a child is to be seen and not heard and his idea is that, well, children are are good for chores and not for much else, then you're probably not going to go to your father and ask him to take you to Disneyland next week. You're not going to ask for that because you wouldn't expect to get it. So you ask for what you reasonably expect that you can get. Now on the other hand, if your dad was the kind of dad that just any day, I mean you didn't even know, he might bring you home a present, bring you a toy to play with, then, then you would have a good idea of what kinds of things that you could ask him for. Now, my kids knew me very well. They, they knew I was a softy. Uh, it was hard for me to refuse my kids anything. And so if it wasn't something that would kill them, then they would probably get it. That's what they want. And uh, in, 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 with measure, of course. Now, think about God. You know his character. You know how good God is. And so are you going to approach him fearfully? Are you going to approach God like you're afraid? Well, he'll backhand me for asking him. Hebrews says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, God became a man, and he went through everything that we experience. The writer here is telling us that he feels everything that we go through, but then he goes further. He says we can come boldly to God. Not irreverently. But he means without fear. We, we come before God and we expect that God will give us mercy and help in our time of need. So you see what Jesus is trying to get across? The Father's favor. Then he gives us another characteristic of the Father's favor. And that is the Father exceeds in generosity. Our Heavenly Father exceeds the most generous Father on earth. I love the way that Paul states the generosity of God in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, Now, unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Now, have you ever thought that not only do we not ask often enough from God, but we ask too little? Paul says, that God not only gives us what we ask, but He can give above what we ask, and even says He can give above what we think. You know that's demonstrated over and over again in Scripture. One of my favorite places to go back to is Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, and we've used this so much. I know you're familiar with it. You can probably quote the whole story right back to me. But do you remember what Elijah said to that widow? You remember that she was ready to cook her last meal, and she was going to feed her son, and then she was going to die, because there was a famine. And Elijah came to her, and he said, fix me some food first. In other words, he's telling this poor lady, he says, you take the very last thing that you have, you take all the food that you have, and instead of feeding yourself and your son, you feed me first. The widow heard that, and... At first she was probably thinking, well, maybe God will bless me for this. I'll just do what he says. Maybe God will bless me for it, and I'll get an extra meal out of it. But you know when she obeyed, Elijah came back with this in 1 Kings 17. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat, Many days. Now it wasn't just a few minutes before this that she was on the last meal. She was going to die. But God was so gracious to her. He favored her. So it says she ate many days. She obeyed God and she ate all the way until the end of the famine. And you know you can find those superlatives of God over and over again in Scripture. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. And there you'll find that people did great things for God because they served a great God. Now I think what Jesus then is trying to tell us here is that we are missing out on a whole lot of blessings because what we're trying to do is to solve our problems in our own strength. He's waiting to take care of us. And what we do is we finally keep trying and trying and we get down to the, to the end of all the resources that we have. We've tried everything and we've failed. And finally, we come crawling to Jesus. And he just looks down at us and says... Where have you been? All you had to do is ask. All you had to do is ask. Now think of the immediate context of this. Because this is a long flowing sermon. We just don't lift this out of these three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and use them independently. It's a long flowing sermon. None of it's disconnected. So how are we going to do everything that precedes this? How are we going to judge properly? How are we going to know how to approach an offending brother? How are we going to be purified in our own lives so that we're able to do that? How are we going to live? Everything that Jesus said in chapters 5 and 6. How are we going to be a light to the world? How will we be the salt of the earth? How are we going to stop offending people? How are we going to love our neighbors as ourselves? And then how are we going to do the very next verse? Treat others as we want to be treated. And Jesus has just supplied the answer for us. Ask, seek, and knock. When you ask, you will receive. When you seek, you will find. And when you knock, it will be opened unto you. So God wants us to pray. He's anxious to bless us. He wants us to come to him in faith. When you come to him in faith, and when you come to him as even a duty, this is what God requires. This is what God wants. And when you come to him with an earnest desire then God says, where were you? Just ask, and you will receive. That's the character of our Heavenly Father. That's the best Father that you could ever know. Praise God for our earthly fathers, those who raise us, those who love us, give us the things that we needed to make it through life. But praise God most of all that we have a Heavenly Father who watches over us, and He desires nothing better than for us to come to Him and ask Him for what we desire. Ask, seek, and knock, and God will supply you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we are able to look into your word today. We praise you, Lord, that you are a God who hears prayer. You are anxious for us to come to you. There are so many blessings that could be ours if we just ask, if we just believed, if we would just keep on seeking, if we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. If we would keep knocking on the door until it's open, we know, Lord, that you're there ready to give us everything that we need. You've told us that you're not going to withhold any good gift from us. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to your people today and, and, and press this upon our hearts, that we'd pray as we should. And then we also ask you, Lord, for those that are here who may not know you as Savior. They don't even understand the relationship uh, of the Heavenly Father. There's a joy, a peace that comes over your heart when you trust Christ as Savior, knowing that God is your Father. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to some soul today, bring them to you, and we'll give you the praise for this. Bless us as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.